Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 54, the book of Matthew, chapter 15, continued. We're going to continue this week in Matthew, chapter 15. It's one of the more challenging, therefore controversial, chapters in the New Testament. At the same time, it is one of the most inspirational, instructional, and therefore among the most important for believers to get right, because it sets the foundation for several fundamental doctrines. Now we stopped last week at verse 16, when after giving a parable to explain the problem about man-made traditions, Yeshua is asked by Peter to explain it. Now see, parables were created and spoken as, as simple literary devices to make a complex subject easier for regular folks to grasp. So an obviously exasperated Yeshua says to His disciples, you don't understand even now? Now let's back up a bit so that we can kind of reconstitute the all-important context of what exactly is transpiring in this scene. And what is it that Jesus is trying to teach? Now Yeshua and His disciples have been confronted by some Pharisees and scribes. These are all synagogue leaders. And they've come from Jerusalem to the Galilee just for that purpose. They want to expose Jesus, if they can, as a heretic, a Jew who does not follow the all-important Jewish traditions and the observance of his religion, and thus he shouldn't have this adoring following that he has gained. Now the religious leaders see Yeshua as a man who is painting outside the lines of a nominal Jewish faith. So the issue they use to base their condemnation on has to do with the ritual purity laws, specifically ritual hand washing, which they say Yeshua's disciples are not doing. So the most salient point I can make, and it needs to be made loud and clear, is that verses 1 through 20 are entirely about ritual handwashing and whatever spiritual results it provides. Now, ritual handwashing is not to be found in the Torah. Rather, it was a tradition of the elders. The only ones among Israel who have certain commandments about washing are priests and Levites and only in the performance of their temple duties. Thus the basis for the debate is that Jesus sees the Pharisees and the scribes following and demanding that others follow human contrived traditions that in His view effectively override and violate certain laws of Moses handed down from the Father on Mount Sinai. Now ritual hand washing is not to be found in the Torah. 
And this is an important thing we must all grasp as we read this section. See, Yeshua refers to the synagogue leaders who insist on obedience to this man-made tradition, this doctrine, over and above God's biblical rules and regulations, He calls them blind guides. In earlier chapters He called them wolves in sheep's clothing. Clearly He has little use for them, and He sees them as a stumbling block to the Jewish people's relationship with the Father instead of operating as the teachers of God's truth that they should be. So after publicly correcting these synagogue leaders from Jerusalem and pointing out the error of their ways, Christ's disciples, well, they're shocked. They're worried that their master would say such a harsh an offensive thing to these highly revered men and in front of a large crowd of onlookers. You know, it should be sinking in that the religious mindset of the disciples is causing them to do exactly what most Christians have done and continue to do. The disciples were victims of the tainted lenses through which they had been taught by their religious elite on how to view the world. They assume that if one of their religious leaders has the proper credentials, is popular, and is widely accepted as having official authority, then he automatically deserves not only respect, but to be believed without question. His position's the only proof needed of His righteousness. So for a layman, like Yeshua is viewed as, for a layman to attack the synagogue leader's teachings as incorrect, and even to attack them personally by calling them names, like blind guides, that seems wrong even to His own disciples. The synagogue leaders, due to their positions, they're not asked to provide any proof for the validity of this ritual hand-washing they demand. But Christ, well, Christ is asked to explain Himself for speaking against it. And as is typical, the religious leadership sees it as an affront to even be questioned by a layman over what they assert is the proper observance of the faith. Well, let's read Christ's explanation in response to Peter's request. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 15. It's Matthew chapter 15. We're going to start reading at verse 16. We're just going to read verses 16 through 20. 16 through 20. So he said, Don't you understand even now? Don't you see that anything that enters the mouth goes into the stomach? Then it passes out into the latrine. But what comes out of your mouth is actually coming from your heart. That's what makes a person unclean. For out of the heart comes forth wicked thoughts, 
murder, adultery, other kinds of sexual immorality, theft, lies, slanders. These are what really make a person unclean, but eating without doing netilat yadim, ritual hand washing, does not make a person unclean. Notice the key, well, because Mark's Gospel, we're going to go there first, because Mark's Gospel has this parallel account of this incident, I think we need to read that as well in order to get an added perspective, but also to address the main controversy of this story. So let's, let's go ahead and open our Bibles to Mark. Mark chapter 6, or rather uh, 7, I'm, I apologize, Mark rather, uh, chapter 7, we're going to re start reading at verse 13, and we're going to go through 23. Thus with your tradition, which you had handed down to you, you nullify the word of God, and you do other things like this. Then Yeshua called the people to him again and said, Listen to me, all of you, and understand this. There is nothing outside a person which by going into him can make him unclean. Rather, it is the things that come out of a person which make a person unclean. When he had left the people and entered the house, his Talmudim, his disciples, asked him about the parable. And he replied to them, So you too are without understanding? Don't you see that nothing going into a person from outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go into his heart, it goes into a stomach, and it passes out into the latrine. Thus he declared, All foods ritually clean. It is what comes out of a person, he went on, that makes him unclean. For from within, out of a person's heart, come forth wicked thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, indecency, envy, slander, arrogance, foolishness. All these wicked things come from within, and they make a person unclean. Notice the key words that Mark uses that ensures that Mark's readers understand the sensitive issue at hand. Now this is Christ speaking from Mark 7.13. Thus with your tradition, which you had handed down to you, you nullify the Word of God, and you do other things like this. See, Mark 7.13-18 through 18 almost precisely mirrors Matthew. 15, 16 through 20. However, it is the final words of Mark 7, verse 19, where the crux of the modern day Christian controversy erupts. Because those words and that thought does not appear in Matthew's Gospel or in any other place in the New Testament. The words are, thus he, Christ, declared all foods ritually clean. Now we're going to circle back to the statement, but what has to be noted is this. Assuming that those words were penned by Mark, they were Mark's editorial comment. They were not Christ's words, nor were they purported to be. That is, those words represent a conclusion 
or perhaps an assumption reached either by Mark or more likely by a later Christian editor, which by the way is not just me, this is a widely held suspicion All right, among Bible scholars because the comment's just out of place. In literature, ancient and modern, such a thing is rather common, and the name that's given for it is a gloss. A gloss. Now Yeshua's explanation to Peter and to the rest of the disciples was to try to reason with them using what we might call common sense. So he uses a universally understood metaphor. He says, look, whatever you put into your mouth, whatever you eat, first it goes into your stomach, then later on it passes out into the latrine. What Yeshua has said, of course, wouldn't have been challenged, because it was a normal human process of which everyone was aware. So the premise is that whatever enters your mouth, what you eat, always has the same result. It doesn't matter what the food might be, nor what the ritual purity condition of that food might be. The food itself may be ritually clean or ritually unclean. But the bodily process and the end result, well, that's always the same. The next point made is that whether the food is consumed in a ritually clean or a ritually unclean state when it enters one's mouth, the final result of it being deposited in a latrine means that either way, all food, after it's been eaten, then it's been digested, eventually winds up in an unclean state. And this processing, processing of food through our bodies and then out, it has no effect on our hearts. He means minds. On the other hand, says Yeshua, what comes out of our mouth, that is our speech, our words, that's far more important. Because that reflects the true condition of our heart, again, our mind. Stop right here. Notice something interesting. Okay? In his explanation of the parable, Yeshua at first talks about the physical body process of putting some physical food into our mouth, and then what our physical bodies naturally do with it just the way God designed us. But then he turns around and switches to speaking of an invisible process, words, speech, that does carry enormous spiritual repercussions. That is, what is in our mind, our heart, will reveal itself by what comes out of our mouth. And this is what God uses to judge each of us personally as clean or unclean in His eyes. Now understand that especially by Christ's day, terms like clean and unclean, they had evolved a bit in their meaning within Jewish society. 
And we regularly see the evidence of this in the New Testament. Clean and unclean had by then become more broad than technical. As used as a matter of daily conversation, and as we have just read of what Yeshua said about those terms, it often wasn't meant as a precise legal term. The way it used to be in the law, the way it was rather in the law of Moses. Unclean had just become a way of saying that something was no longer desirable. It had been rendered as bad, or perhaps as no longer suitable for use by man or God. The person that has an unclean mind will, according to Yeshua, outwardly produce murder, adultery, and all kinds of sexual immorality because our outward physical behavior results from our inward invisible thoughts. So the terms unclean and sin started to become synonyms in Jewish society when used in a general conversational way even though, biblically speaking, ritual impurity and sin are two very different things, and they are treated in different ways. Again, what was the subject of this entire discourse? Ritual hand-washing as a tradition of the elders. So Christ is saying that ritual hand-washing has no ability to take unclean food and make it clean, nor could clean food be made ritually unclean if one didn't perform the ritual hand washing before eating. However, the nearly universal Christian take on this is that Yeshua sort of changed subjects or melded two subjects into one, ritual hand washing and kosher eating. Thus the church doctrine is that Yeshua abolished the food laws as contained in the Law of Moses. Yet if one is certain that this is what Christ did, according to what we read in Mark, how can anyone take seriously what we read in Matthew 5, 17-20 that takes place during Christ's Sermon on the Mount? We're going to say it again. Don't think I've come to abolish the Torah or the prophets. I've come not to abolish, but to complete. Yes, indeed, I tell you that until heaven and earth passes away, not so much as a uterus stroke is going to pass from the Torah, not until everything that, has happened, that must happen has happened. So whoever disobeys the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever obeys them and so teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Because I tell you, unless your righteousness is far greater than that of the Torah teachers and the Pharisees, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. See, it doesn't matter which Bible version one chooses, or which ancient Greek manuscript that's used for translation to English. The words of this passage remain consistently the same. Jesus does not make the principle briefly 
so that it can just be allegorized away. Rather, he goes to some length and detail, making the same point in several ways, to emphasize that no matter how anyone might choose to spin it, he did not abolish the Torah and the Prophets. Together with, when those two words are used together, it's referring to the entire Old Testament. But also not even the tiniest detail of the Torah would be dropped or changed until the current universe and earth no longer exist. So it just doesn't hang together scripturally that Christ could make this strong statement and expand upon it in the Sermon on the Mount and supporting every aspect of the Torah and the Law of Moses and then turn around later and schizophrenically abolish the Torah food laws, which are central to it. But also notice one thing that I've already pointed out. The statement that he did not abolish the Torah or any part of it is a quote from Christ's own mouth. It's what he said. The statement in the book of Mark about Christ declaring all foods ritually clean, that did not come from Christ. Rather, those words were an editorial assumption coming from the mind of Mark or from some later Christian editor who added those words to the verse. I'm going to take that one step farther. Those words in Mark form the entire basis for a Christian tradition of the elders, a man-made church doctrine that's been handed down, that declares that kosher eating has been abolished. This is then further expanded by the church to say that if the food laws have been abolished, then this is the needed proof that the entire law of Moses has also been abolished, even though this seems to thoroughly contradict the words from the mouth of God on earth, Jesus. This is precisely the same issue. <laughs> See the irony of it. This is precisely the same issue Yeshua is battling with the Pharisees and the scribes. It's the same thing. They are advocating for their Jewish tradition of the elders, a man-made synagogue doctrine, about ritual hand-washing. That, according to Yeshua, thoroughly contradicts the words of God. Why am I so confident about what I'm telling you today in, face, in the face of centuries of church doctrine to the contrary? And that this passage is about one thing only, a tradition of ritual hand-washing. It's because the final verse of the passage confirms it. Matthew 15, 20. These are what really make a person unclean. But eating without doing netalat yadayim, that does not make a person unclean. That's what it's all been about. See, the final thought about this episode with the synagogue leaders and ritual hand-washing confirms that Yeshua did not create some new sweeping rule, some new law to replace, kind of like a law of Jesus, that replaces the law of Moses. He didn't make an 11th commandment. 
or he didn't reduce the number to nine. He didn't institute any change to the Torah. Rather, he's attacking those particular Jewish traditions that either contradict the Word of God, the written Torah, or twist the intended meaning of God's laws and commands to suit human purposes. Let's move on to the next part of Matthew 15. Oh, reopen your Bibles now to Matthew chapter 15. We're going to read verses 21 to 28. So we're moving back to Matthew. Matthew 15, verses 21 to 28. Yeshua left that place and went off to the region, region of Zor and Sidon. A woman from Canaan, Canaan, who was living there, came to him pleading, Sir, have pity on me, son of David. My daughter is cruelly held under the power of demons. But Yeshua didn't say a word to her. Then his Talmudim came to him and urged him, Send her away, because she's following us and she keeps pestering us with her crying. He said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and fell at his feet and said, Sir, help me. And he answered, It's not right to take the children's food and toss it to their pet dogs. And she said, That is true, sir. But even the dogs eat the leftovers that fall from their master's table. Then Yeshua answered her, Lady, you are a person of great trust. Let your desire be granted. And her daughter was healed at that very moment. This is another story <laughs> that creates some doctrinal problems within Christianity and challenging these doctrines is long overdue. It centers around the fulcrum of this portion of the chapter, which is verse 24. Matthew 15, 24, He, that's Christ, said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So the story begins with Jesus leaving His encounter with the hostile Jewish synagogue leadership and then heading north or northwest to what is called Tyre, Tyre and Sidon. Now, some Bible commentators say that Yeshua was fleeing the area for his own safety. Now, although he might have been doing that, nothing in the written word implies it. See, in the first century, the territories of Tyre and Sidon, they bordered on the Mediterranean Sea to the west, but also, see, they extended well eastward, inland, to the interior of the Upper Galilee, and then to the north, even as far as Damascus. So likely, it was not that Yeshua ventured into what some considered as the foreign cities of Tyre and Sidon, but rather He went somewhere within their recognized territorial areas that wasn't very far from where He'd been. Now this likelihood explains why a Gentile woman from Canaan, that is, she was descended from Canaanites, would even think 
to approach the Jew, Jesus, for exorcism for her daughter, and then to address him as son of David. I mean, I must say it is rather strange to see this ancient term Canaan suddenly just pop up here. I mean, Canaan or Canaanite, well, that's an early Old Testament designation that is probably intended by Matthew to, to remind his Jewish readers of the animosity between ancient Israel and her Gentile enemies. Yeah, it may have been that Matthew used the term Canaan to sort of heighten the tension of this story about Christ and his this heathen woman who approaches him. Otherwise, it's hard to imagine why it's why it appears. Well, nonetheless, the next thing for us to ponder in this story is why she would think to call Yeshua the son of David. That's a term only known and used within the Jewish religion and culture. Or think to approach him for healing. Now, actually, I don't think the solution is all that difficult. Okay, first of all, Yeshua was by now known far and wide in the region for his healing miracles and his exorcisms. And while it's true that as a Sadiq, Yeshua was a miracle healer within the context of the cultural customs and societal confines of the Jews, where this woman lived, no doubt, was within a population mix of Jews and Gentiles and probably some members of the ten Israelite tribes that had been exiled so many centuries earlier. So his accomplishments and his identity would not have been unknown, not understood, uh, or not understood by her. The folks in this region were quite familiar with each other's cultures due to a long-term history of interaction and an enormous amount of family intermixing that occurred over the centuries. Well, next, this is not the first time We've heard someone yelling, Son of David, at Yeshua. Now, we've explored the probable meaning of this uniquely Jewish label in earlier lessons, but very briefly, it did not have, it could not have had the meaning of Savior, as is often claimed in Christian circles. And I've shown you numerous lessons that as of this point in Jesus' ministry, he'd not revealed that he was Israel's Messiah, and there seemed to be no inkling among the thousands of Jews he encountered, or even among his own disciples, of his true identity and purpose. So to take the expression, Son of David, as meaning Messiah, to this Gentile woman, or to anyone else up to now, has no basis in historical or biblical record. Rather, it was that the label Son of David was meant literally. It was referring to Solomon, David's firstborn. It was a Jewish tradition. It was a myth, really, that Solomon was a miracle healer and an exorcist par excellence 
as well as the supreme fount of wisdom. All of these were traits that they saw displayed in Yeshua. And so they wondered if the spirit of Solomon may be alive within this carpenter from Nazareth. Now verses 22 and 23 say that Jesus completely ignored the pleas of this desperate Gentile woman for him to help her precious daughter be rid of demon possession. Even his disciples found her not worthy of their or his attention. Why? Because as Yeshua responds, he came only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. My goodness, how are we to understand this? I mean, was he quite forcefully rejecting this woman only because she was not Jewish? Instead, it begins by acknowledging a distinct and unmistakable Jew versus Gentile hostility present here that had existed for centuries. It also speaks of the cultural mindset of Jewish exceptionalism. I want to say this another way. Jesus' Jewishness and His mission exclusively to His fellow Jews, including those ten lost tribes of Israel, is front and center. There's no way to dismiss it or spiritualize it away. The ICC commentary on Matthew acknowledges this fact, and it puts it this way. Jesus declares unequivocally the absolute priority of Israel for His mission. No, says institutional Christianity. No. Jesus didn't mean what He said. He meant He came only first to the Jews, not only to the Jews. Now, every version of the Greek New Testament ever found, every credible version of the English translation of this verse comes to the same conclusion. The word is only, it's not first. After all, says Christianity, we all know that Jesus was all about Gentile priority as the replacement of the Jews. We all know that, right? Isn't that what the church says? And herein lies the rub. Once again, as Yeshua said in our previous story, religious tradition, doctrines, should never trump God's Word, but they do. The church uses that principle only to disparage Jewish use of Jewish tradition, but not Christian use of Christian tradition. See, it's the classic religious hypocrisy of the pot calling the kettle black. We can do it because God has elevated us, but you can't do it because God doesn't love you anymore. See, we do have to be careful in the Bible, however, to take a verse in isolation. When a half dozen words are spoken about a subject, and especially 
when it seems it's laying down a new God principle and then we never find it spoken of again in the scriptures, it is right to be cautious and to take it with a grain of salt. For instance, as we discussed in Mark 7.19 when we find the words in brackets no less in our Bibles that says that Christ declared all foods as ritually clean, we find this sentiment in no other place in the New Testament, but even more it runs completely counter to everything Yeshua has said on the subject on the laws of Moses. So do we find the concept of Jewish priority for Yeshua somewhere else? Matthew 10 verses 5 and 6. These twelve Yeshua set out with the following instructions, Do not go into the territory of the Goyim, the Gentiles, and don't enter any town of Shamron, Samaria. Go rather only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Principles firmly established. Not only the disciples, but Yeshua Himself has as the mission to take the gospel of the good news exclusively to the house of Israel and not to Gentiles. I'm going to have more to say about this, but first, the Gentile woman doesn't take Christ's stone silence to her as the final word. She falls at His feet and says, according to the complete Jewish Bible, Sir, help me! Many other Bible versions say, Lord, help me. Aha, says Christianity. Calling Jesus Lord spiritualizes everything that's happening and so means she somehow knows He is God incarnate and the Messiah when nobody else seems to. Not so fast. The Greek word kurios and it, that's the word that's being used here, gets translated into Lord. The Greek word kurios, and it's a generic word of respect used mostly in secular circles. It speaks of any kind of master or a person of authority. Sir is a very good English translation for understanding the tone and tenor of the meaning for we 21st century Christ followers. There is, however, nothing wrong with using the the term Lord as we find it in the King James Version, for instance, because Lord, as it was used in the King James Version era, is the equivalent of Sir today. There was no built-in religious concept, concept to it at all a concept that Christianity assigns to the term Lord anywhere and everywhere it's found in the Bible. The woman was in no way meaning that Yeshua was God or Savior. Rather, she was merely showing Him proper respect as He was a well-known leader of a pretty substantial flock of followers. And, (laughs) as we all know, when we're requesting something from someone that's reluctant to give it to us, a little better to show some extra respect in hopes of softening him or her up. 
Now, to make this story even more difficult for Christians to take, when the woman continues her plea for help, Christ responds, but it's not right to take the children's food and toss it to their pet dogs. Oh, boy. The early church father, Chrysostom, says this about this scene. The more urgent she makes her entreaty, so the more does he also urge his denial. See, Yeshua's response sounds almost cruel to a Christian. How can Christ turn his back on her predicament, even putting her down for not being a Jew, if he's such a loving Savior? Looking at his reply, see, Israel represents the children. The children's food, well, that represents all the benefits Yeshua brings to them. And the dogs, what do they represent? All the non-Jews. Once again, we find Jewish priority. Now, interestingly, Mark, well, he has a little bit different approach to Yeshua's response. His gospel says on this in Mark 7:27, let the children be fed first. It's not right to take the children's food and toss it to their pet dogs. So while Matthew has Christ speaking in terms not only of priority, but of exclusivity in favor of the Jews, Mark softens it only to Jewish priority. That is, there is a sliver of an opening for Gentiles to be included, but nonetheless, Jews are the primary aim. There is no better time than now to discuss what this means for Jews and Gentiles as far as our places in a divine pecking order, if there is one, and what it means within mainstream Christianity that essentially turns what we have just read in the New Testament in this regard on its head. Since the church long ago veered away from being a body that is predicated on Christ's teachings and relies more on the words of the Apostle Paul, nonetheless, Paul expresses this same principle of Jewish priority, but not Jewish exclusivity. And he does that in one of his more famous dissertations in Romans chapter 11. I'd like you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 11, please. Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter, we're not going to read it all. We're just going to read a handful of verses. We're going to read verses 13 through 27. 13 through 27. So it's the book of Romans chapter 11. However, to those of you who are Gentiles, I say this. Since I myself am an emissary sent to the Gentiles, I make known the importance of my work in the hope that somehow I may provoke some of my own people to jealousy and save some of them. For if they're casting Yeshua aside 
means reconciliation for the world, what will um, their accepting him mean? It will be life from the dead. Now, if the challah offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole loaf. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, who's he talking to? Gentiles. If you, Gentiles, a wild olive, were grafted in among them and have become equal shares in the rich root of the olive tree, then don't boast as if you were better than the branches. However, if you do boast, remember, you're not supporting the root. The root's supporting you. So you'll say, well, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. True, but so what? They were broken off because of their lack of trust. However, you keep your place only because of your trust, so don't be arrogant. On the contrary, be terrified. Because if God did not spare the natural branches, He's certainly not going to spare you, Gentiles. So take a good look at God's kindness and His severity. On the one hand, severity towards those who fell off. On the other hand, God's kindness towards you, Gentiles, provided you maintain yourself in that kindness. Otherwise, you too are going to be cut off. Moreover, the others, if they do not persist in their lack of trust, will be grafted in because God is able to graft them back in. For if you were cut out of what is by nature a wild olive tree, and you were grafted, Gentiles, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these natural branches be grafted back into their own olive tree. For brothers, I want you to understand this truth, which God formerly concealed but now has revealed, so that you won't imagine you know more than you do. It is that this stoniness to a degree has come upon Israel until the Gentile world enters its fullness. And it's in this way that all Israel will be saved. As the Tanakh, the Old Testament says, out of Zion will come the Redeemer. He will turn away ungodliness from Yaakov, from Jacob, from Israel. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. That's some pretty powerful words, but pretty straightforward. See, I have referred you to Romans 11 only to make the point that Gentile inclusion, but Jewish priority, well, that was thoroughly understood by Paul. You can go to my commentary on, on Romans at the TorahClass.com website for a more detailed study of this chapter. Paul used the metaphor of a wild olive tree being grafted into a cultivated olive tree in the same way and meaning that Yeshua used the metaphor of the children's food being tossed to dogs. See, we can equate 
the children's food with the cultivated olive tree. And the dogs with the wild olive tree. The idea is, who does the food belong to? Belongs to and was intended for the children. Not to the dogs. In the same way that the cultivated, cultivated olive tree belongs to the orchard. And it was intended for the orchard's cultivator. But the wild olive, it didn't belong there. Yet, as the woman says in Matthew 15, 27, she says, Sir, that's true. That's true. But even the dogs get to eat the leftovers that fall from their master's table. In other words, the woman acknowledges the priority of the children and their food, but says that dogs can also be included, and albeit it's the leftovers, they'll benefit from it. Just as Paul acknowledges that the cultivated olive tree is the one that has the priority. It's the one that's been given special care. It's the one that's supported by its own rich roots. Even so, a wild olive, a wild olive can be grafted onto that cultivated, cultivated olive tree and receive the same nourishment, the same blessings from the same covenants. The cultivated olive tree is the house of Israel. The wild olive tree represents Gentiles. Very plain in Romans 11. Yet what we find is that early on in the institutional church, it reversed the priority. They say that the children have become Gentiles. The dogs have become Israel. And that the cultivated olive tree has become Gentiles, and the wild olive tree, that's become Israel. This doctrine has many names, one of which is called replacement theology. Gentile Christians have replaced Israel, and are, they now hold the priority before God. I could spend a lot more time discrediting what is sadly a faith principle on which the bulk of Western and Eastern Christianity stands. But if you have the ears to hear, if you are willing to take God's Word as the priority over man-made doctrines, then I think what I've already said is sufficient. And we're going to move on. Yeshua was startled by the woman's response to him. I mean, she may have been insulted by Yeshua classifying her Gentile status as that of dogs, but she refused to let it deter her. She knew that this Jewish holy man was her only hope to heal her daughter of being possessed by evil spirits. Her only hope. So, she submitted to Christ's categorization of her, but at the same time asked for just the crumbs of Yeshua's mission and abilities and thought those would be sufficient to heal her daughter. 
Her faith and her humility brought out Christ's compassion to detour just for a moment from His purpose and His priority, and so He healed this little girl without her even being in His presence. We must not overlook something that would not have been on the fringes of this story when a first-century Jew read this, but it is to modern believers. It is that the one making the appeal to Jesus was a woman. A woman. See, it's difficult in the West to understand the male-dominant society of the first century. I mean, women in Jewish culture were not chattel, but they were seen as having lesser value than men. That's not what God says, but it is the ubiquitous Middle Eastern cultural tradition of that era that, by the way, prevails to this very day. On top of that, this is a non-Jewish woman. Boy, talk about two strikes. And this is one reason that Yeshua's disciples had virtually no regard for her at all. There are only two non-Jewish women in the entire New Testament who are said to have great faith. This woman is one of them. Yeshua in no way changed His mind about His mission or His priority to bring the good news to the house of Israel. And we're going to see this fact played out through the rest of His life, His death, His resurrection, even post-resurrection actions. Now, what we ought to take away from this story, besides the priority of Israel to Jesus, is that the great faith in Yeshua by any person of any background will bring acceptance, and with it the greatest of benefits. And still, for the sake of intellectual honesty, I must point out that the faith this woman had was not that Yeshua was God and Savior, but rather that He was a unique miracle healer. And as a Gentile, she wasn't particular where the needed healing came from, even from a Jew. She simply was glad to receive it. I'm going to ask you all to join me in battling to restore the truth that we've been studying today. Join me, please. I'm sorry to say that the Gentile arrogance that's so dominant within the Christian church has resulted in a type of Christianity that would bring us nothing but reprimand if our Savior Yeshua stood in person among us today. You know, it's hard to overstate how a false, fundamental faith principle that puts Gentiles above Jews, Gentiles above Israel, relegating Israel to disinheritance, taints a broad spectrum of Christian doctrines. 
It's also why so many believers who, are, who have come to recognize this her heresy struggle to apply a simple label to identify who we are, what we call ourselves. Christian, the word Christian has come to mean a host of things, many of which run counter to the teaching of Yeshua and all the Bible, and therefore many believers understandably want to shun that label. I implore you to pray that God will restore the congregation of Christ to devote ourselves to the goal that Yeshua left us with as He moved into heaven just waiting for that moment that the Father would send Him back for us. In Acts 1, 6-9 we read, When they were together, they asked Him, Lord, are You at this time going to restore self-rule for Israel? And He answered, You don't need to know the dates or the times. The Father has kept these under His own authority, but You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, indeed to the ends of the earth. And saying this, he was taken up before their eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. We'll continue in Matthew 15 next week.